There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America. Known as the Aloha State, Hawaii is renowned as a tropical haven with stunning beaches, incredible landscapes, and friendly locals. Hawaii attracts tourists from around the globe with its culture and beauty, and at 4,000 square miles, Hawaii's Big Island is the largest island in the state. In the early 1990s, Hawaii welcomed millions of visitors to Big Island and the other six inhabited islands. Kilauea Volcano on the Big Island has been erupting regularly since 1983, making it the world's most active volcano. And while most eruptions are self-contained, the unpredictable volatility of nature makes the volcano seem like the most dangerous thing on the island. But a horrific crime in 1991 proved that was not the case. The laid-back feel of Hawaii could lull someone into a false sense of security, making them a victim of those who seek to do them harm. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to Episode 70 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law & Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. It was shortly before 5 p.m. on Christmas Eve, 1991, when Ida Smith, a resident of the Wawa area in Puna on the Big Island of Hawaii, was busy in her kitchen. Through an open window, Ida heard faint screams coming from a fishing trail behind the dense expanse of pandanus trees and shrubs off of Kapoho Beach Road. Ida followed the sound, and, as she got closer she could distinguish that the sound was someone calling for help. Before the cliff's edge, partially concealed by branches, she saw the bloodied body of a young woman. The woman was bleeding from a massive head wound that appeared to have removed some of her scalp, and her denim shorts were around her ankles. Her tank top was torn and pulled up to her neck, and as Ida recovered from the initial shock, She tried to help the woman off the rough foliage, and the woman started screaming in pain. Ida tried to ask her name and who had hurt her, but the replies didn't make sense. The victim gestured to the shorts around her ankles and asked Ida to take them off. She was missing a shoe, so after removing the white athletic shoe on the woman's right foot... Ida also pulled her shorts over her feet and placed them to the side before running back to her house to get a sheet. In some places, the rural area of Wawa did not have running water, telephone lines, or even electricity, so Ida was at a loss for what to do. She prayed as she held the woman's hand and listened intently for any sound of approaching vehicles. Three quarters of an hour later, Ida heard a car traveling along the road next to them. She ran to flag down the driver and told them she needed help for a young woman who had been raped and beaten. The driver called police at 5.50 p.m. and told dispatchers the victim was along the beach road. Hawaii did not have 911 in 1991, so the call went to the police. 
One of the first officers to arrive was Officer Harold Pinnow, who had been called away from the scene of a bike crash five miles away. He immediately recognized the victim as the woman they had been searching for at the suspected hit-and-run site. It took an hour before emergency responders agreed to drive along the narrow cinder road after debating whether it would damage their vehicles. When they arrived, the woman's pulse was weak, and her blood pressure was so low that it could not be measured in the ambulance. Paramedics later recalled that she was incoherent and combative. She was hard to settle, constantly moving around. Blood had coagulated in her long blonde hair, and when she was brought into Hilo Hospital around 8 p.m., the full extent of her injuries was revealed. A motorist driving around Kapoho Kai Drive had spotted a white athletic shoe in the middle of the road around 5.20 p.m. She also saw a wrecked bicycle on the roadside, and next to it there was a broken wristwatch and a clump of blonde hair. Anna Shirell rushed home to call the police. On the call, she said, There's a bicycle completely crushed there, the girl's shoes out on the street, some of her hair, her watch has been ripped off of her from the impact. The tracks look like it's a hit and run. There's a lot of weeds around there, big thick bushes. I don't know if there's a body or what. To try and preserve some of the evidence, a passerby had taken photographs of tire tracks on the road. An older man, John Ireland, arrived at the scene within minutes and recognized the bike as one his 23-year-old daughter, Dana, had been riding that evening. John Ireland also called the police and asked if there had been any accident reports, as his daughter had been involved in one and they couldn't find her. For almost an hour, people searched the surrounding area for Dana, hoping she was somewhere close by with minor injuries. But when the call about a blonde female assault victim in her early 20s in Wawa came in, the police knew that Dana had been found. At Hilo Hospital, emergency medics found that Dana had sustained severe injuries to her head and was suffering from massive internal bleeding. Her pelvis had been broken in two places, and one of the broken bones had pierced her bladder. There was also hemorrhaging to her major organs, including her stomach, lungs, and heart. An injury to her head had pulled away some of her scalp, exposing her skull, and she was covered in cuts and abrasions across her entire body. She also had what appeared to be a bite mark on her breast. Despite undergoing emergency surgery to stop the bleeding, nothing could be done. Dana Ireland was pronounced dead shortly after midnight on Christmas Day. Dana Ireland was the second-born, much-loved daughter of Springfield, Virginia-based couple John and Louise Ireland. Their first daughter, Sandy, was born 13 years before Dana came into the world on December 12, 1968. Despite the age gap, the sisters were close, and Dana idolized Sandy. Louise Ireland later recalled, She always kept her hair long because Sandy had long hair. She wanted to be just like her sister. The Irelands were a tight-knit family, bonded by many moves across the globe before John retired from the Army. Sandy had attended college on the Big Island before settling down with her boyfriend, Jim Ingham, on Ilani Road in the Puna District to raise palm trees. Dana's sister entered adulthood while Dana was still in elementary school, so she wasn't around as much. Dana and her mother, Louise, became even closer as a result. Louise later said, Dana was beautiful and good and kind and sweet. And anything you can say, that was Dana. Everybody loved her. Everything she touched, she turned it into light. Dana was adventurous, but reserved. She loved sports, but was just as happy spending quiet weekends with her parents. Her mother remarked, 
She'd run and run, do exercises, skate, then come home and start all over again. I don't know whether she had some kind of premonition that she wasn't going to be here very long, but she really tried to get everything she could out of life. The family traveled to Hawaii often on vacations to visit Sandy, and Dana longed for the day she too could live on Big Island. After graduating on the honor roll, Dana completed a degree in physical education, and in October 1991, Dana moved in with her sister and Jim. Sandy later recalled, She was sort of my mother's little girl, and it was really hard for her to leave home. I was sort of a way for her to come and have some change from living with mom and dad and sort of open up, some freedom for her. John and Louise came over two months later on December 10th to spend the holidays with their daughters. They rented a house just a mile from Sandy's in a place called Vacation Land, along Kapoho Kai Drive. Dana agreed to stay with her parents in the rental house as Sandy and Jim were on a skiing trip until later in the month. She celebrated her 23rd birthday with her mom and dad a few days later. After some last-minute festive shopping on Christmas Eve, Dana decided to invite her friend Mark to have dinner with her family as he was alone for the holidays. After speaking with Mark at his house in Opahaiko, Dana began the seven-mile journey back to vacation land on her bike just after 4 p.m. Around an hour later, her bike, shoe, watch, and hair were found on the road. And as police arrived at the scene, Dana's sister drove past and recognized the bike. After informing their parents, Sandy and the others returned to the area to search for Dana. When they heard that a young woman matching her description had been found and was being transported to the hospital, they rushed to meet her there. They were devastated when she succumbed to her injuries a few hours later, and stunned when the police announced they were opening a homicide inquiry as, up until that point, they believed it was just a tragic accident. Investigators immediately began processing both the Kapoho Kai Drive scene and the scene in Wawa where Dana was found. Police believed that someone had intentionally driven into the back of Dana's bike at speed along the Kapoho Kai Drive at the intersection of Alani Road, less than half a mile from her parents' rental house. Tire impressions and acceleration marks on the dirt road showed that a large vehicle had swerved from the left oncoming lane to the verge of the right side of the road, hitting Dana's bike. Her injuries and motor oil found on her thigh suggested she had been dragged beneath the vehicle for some distance. Witnesses living on Alani Road told police they had seen a low, dark-colored pickup truck parked at the intersection around 5 p.m. As they watched from their driveway over 100 yards away, they saw that a shirtless man was lifting what looked to be a young woman into the bed of the truck. The man was described as being of local or Hispanic descent, weighing between 180 and 200 pounds, with short black curly hair. As he appeared to lift a person into the back of the truck, the witnesses saw that a young boy with shoulder-length brown hair, between the ages of 9 and 12, had gotten out of the truck before returning to the passenger side. The truck was described as a dark green, gray, or blue, late 70s model Datsun. There were no crime scene technicians in the Big Island Police Force, but detectives had been trained in evidence collection. Evidence collected from the bike crash scene included the mangled bicycle, Dana's watch, her left shoe, and a clump of her hair. At the scene where Dana was found five miles away in Wawa, more tire impressions were seen. At both scenes, the tire measurements were equal at around eight to nine inches wide and had the same tread design. This further indicated that a pickup truck had been used to abduct Dana Ireland after she was run over. In the area, the police collected Dana's shorts and other shoe, a child's shoe, a pair of men's underwear, and a large-sized men's blue-colored Jimmy Z brand t-shirt. The t-shirt was soaked in blood, which was later confirmed to be Dana's blood. 
Examinations by the hospital pathologist confirmed the theory that Dana had been raped by someone after she was brought to the Wawa fishing trail. Afterward, she was either struck again or just left to die. The Big Island did not have a medical examiner at the time, so the pathologist on duty at the hospital conducted her autopsy. Swabs taken at the hospital were stored in evidence along with other items as Big Island's crime lab was not equipped for DNA testing. It had to be outsourced to the FBI lab, and they had a months-long backlog. After it emerged that Dana may have survived if she had received medical attention sooner, there was widespread criticism of the emergency responders. Ambulances were dispatched by the fire service as there was no 911 in the state. Because the first caller in Wawa had contacted the police, an ambulance was not sent for almost half an hour. The dispatch center was also located in the Hilo district, so the call handler didn't know the area well enough to relay the location information to responding officers. Fire Chief Daniel Ayala said that the delays were caused by numerous things, including limited visibility and vague information on the calls. Although the ambulance and fire crews had been at the road leading to Dana by 6.20 p.m., they did not drive down to treat her for another 30 minutes. Chief Ayala stated, The bad condition of the road presented a danger of damaging or disabling rescue vehicles, which would further complicate or jeopardize rescue efforts and increase response time. Ida Smith was incensed by the response and told the Honolulu Star Bulletin, there's no excuse, none at all. If I had known they would take that long, I would have put her in my car and taken her. Hawaii police continued to canvass the Puna district and investigate pickup trucks while the public and Dana's family tried to incentivize some response by offering a reward for information. By the second week of January 1992, just over two weeks after the murder, the reward fund was over $22,000. Following a private memorial for Dana back in Virginia, her family spoke to the Honolulu Advertiser in February 1992. Her father, John, said, It's the loss of a daughter, and she can't be replaced. Our whole family is just in agony. He killed all of us, my other daughter, my wife, and I, and of course Dana. She's gone, and she'll never come back. While she was living, we were looking to the future. Now that she's gone, we're looking to the past. If we get this guy locked up, at least some of our grief and anguish will start to abate. It will never go away completely. At least some of our anger will go away when these people are locked up. If anybody has information and has not come forward, that person is just as guilty as the perpetrators they are harboring a criminal. Dana's mother wondered how much her daughter had suffered and described how it would be easier to accept her death if she had been killed in a road accident, but that was not the case. Louise said, This was intentional, and she was violated. In my opinion, rape is the most vile crime that can be committed. You don't get to say goodbye or hold her hand or nothing. It was like a nightmare. It still is. Police Chief Victor Vieira was being criticized in the press but stated that the homicide investigation was the most intensive investigation in his two years at Big Island Police. They had no intention of slowing down. In 1991, only 350 police officers worked across the entire 4,000 square miles of Big Island. 1,900 police officers worked on the island of Oahu, six and a half times smaller than the Big Island. The Ireland family were frustrated at the lack of progress. John warned that if they did not feel the case was moving by June, he would speak with the national media. He said he didn't want to negatively impact the tourism industry Hawaii heavily relied on. In April, Lieutenant Francis Rodea told the Tribune Herald that the police were hopeful they were close to a positive break in the case. Potential suspects had been identified and samples had been sent to the FBI to try and extract a DNA profile for comparison to DNA found at the scene. One suspect being investigated was living on the island, while another had moved away. 
Lieutenant Rodia also explained that the police had not yet been able to find the vehicle used in the crime. He said, We've looked at millions of vehicles, but we have not seized anything. Later that month, it emerged that the Ireland family intended to file civil proceedings against Hawaii County for the wrongful death of Dana. The suit claimed that Dana died because of extreme delays in getting emergency help to her. Named in the lawsuit were the police, fire, and state health department, and alleged that they had failed to respond to the emergency calls made on behalf of Dana Ireland. The lawsuit stated, The acts and omissions of the defendants resulted in the tragic and untimely death of Dana Ireland. A scholarship fund was established by the Irelands at George Mason University for students residing in Hawaii or Virginia who were the spouse, child, or sibling of a homicide victim. Speaking about the Dana Ireland Memorial Scholarship Fund, John Ireland voiced his hopes that it would help someone who really needs assistance. Although Sandy had moved from Big Island because the murder had impacted her so much, John and Louise regularly returned to the area to appeal for information about their daughter's killer. With no further progress in the case by October 1992, John Ireland wrote a letter published in the Honolulu Advertiser in which he said he found it incomprehensible that no one other than the murderers knew the facts of the crime. John believed that those withholding information that would lead to a conviction were as evil and cowardly as those who were guilty of the murder. John wrote, The murderers and those withholding information of this crime have to understand the adverse impact it has on Dana's family. Her mother spends every hour she is awake grieving for a loving and beautiful daughter she will never see again. Our family always look forward to the joy of Christmas. We now dread the arrival of this day that others will celebrate with joy. For Dana's family, Christmas will now be a day of grief. John appealed to anyone with knowledge to come forward and said that the people of Hawaii did not deserve to live in fear. Dana's family did not want to see survivors of another homicide victim experience their trauma. On Christmas Eve, 1992, the anniversary of Dana's abduction and murder, a vigil and march entitled Take Back the Night were held in front of Pahoa School. Many men and women marched and cycled through Pahoa alongside John Ireland in tribute to Dana. Louise Ireland was too distraught to attend. Although the only thing linking them to Puna was their daughter's murder, the Irelands had bravely returned in the hopes of fueling the public interest in solving the case. John Ireland had been vocal about wanting to get justice not only for Dana, but other victims and those bereaved by homicide in Hawaii. In response to John's calls for legislative change, State Senator Andy Levin introduced a bill that would equalize murder convictions by eliminating second-degree murder classifications. John Ireland had written in a letter to the Tribune Herald, I consider the sexual assault and murder of my daughter no less of a crime than those murders considered first-degree murder under Hawaii's criminal code. Hawaiian law mandated that murder could only be considered first-degree if the victim was a police officer, prosecutor, or judge performing official duties, or if more than one person was killed. Senator Levin said, I agree with Ireland's position that taking of someone's life is equal to the taking of someone else's life. My inclination is that, to value human life, we should abolish degrees of murder. Senator Levin also proposed a second bill allowing a victim impact statement to be presented in person by a victim or family member at the sentencing hearing of a person convicted of a crime. Hawaiian law only allowed written statements to be presented to the judge prior to sentencing. Speaking to the Tribune Herald after the new bills were announced, John Ireland said he was frustrated that no arrests had been made. He claimed to know the name of one of the perpetrators of his daughter's murder and believed that more than one person was involved. He told the paper, What's so frustrating to us is the guys who murdered our daughter are still out walking around. There's a $26,000 reward. 
I just don't understand why someone hasn't come forth with information. In October 1993, John Ireland voiced the opinion that he believed a lack of training had hindered the investigation into his daughter's murder. Police Chief Vieira and the Big Island Police Department had come under fire again in the media for a series of violent crimes against women. One case that led to calls of corruption was the death of Yvonne Matheson, a Big Island police sergeant's wife. Yvonne was killed when her husband struck her with their van. He claimed she had jumped out of the moving vehicle during an argument, and when he drove around to find her during heavy rain, he accidentally ran her over. No charges were filed in the case for over a year until Sergeant Matheson was charged with a misdemeanor. The second anniversary of Dana's death passed without any progress or arrests in the case. The Irelands returned to Hawaii in January 1994 and said they did not intend to leave until there was an indictment. A reception was held at the Pajo Community Center by the Citizens for Justice and the local American Association of University Women. In April of that year, Citizens for Justice released a petition calling for an independent prosecutor to be assigned to the case. The Attorney General's office had reviewed the case files earlier in the year, and Special Assistant to the Attorney General, Ted Baker, said, We're satisfied that everything that can be and should have been done has been done in this case, and that includes actions by the prosecutors, so we don't believe that there's a need to move the case anywhere and there's not a legal authority to appoint an independent prosecutor. Chief Vieira explained that the police were following up on any leads and did not want to jeopardize the case by proceeding too prematurely. Citizens for Justice spokesperson May Apple McCullough said in response, What evidence could be gathered that they didn't have already? They had a body, they had a bicycle, they had clothes, they had semen, they had blood, they had hair samples, they probably had skin tissue. If they don't have enough evidence, my question is, why the hell not? The Irelands hoped that the reward fund and their continued presence on the Big Island would be a catalyst for an arrest. Just over a month later, in late May 1994, Hawaii County Police received a call from someone who said they had information about the case. John Gonsalves, a drug dealer facing up to 10 years in prison for his role in a massive cocaine importation conspiracy case, claimed that his half-brother, Frank Pauline Jr., had witnessed Dana Ireland's murder and wanted to speak with investigators. A 20-year-old father of three, Frank Pauline Jr. had a long history of trouble with police and drug addiction. He had been sentenced to 10 years in prison in February of that year for sexual assault, criminal trespass, and theft. His conviction stemmed from a string of crimes in 1993, leading to Deputy Prosecutor Lincoln Ashida calling Pauline a walking crime wave. Before he could be taken, Pauline had absconded from the courthouse and was rearrested three days later and then taken to the Hawaii Correctional Facility. After hearing from Pauline's brother, Gonzalez, Detective Guillermo, who was heading the investigation, went to speak with Pauline at the Attorney General's office in Honolulu on June 1, 1994. Pauline didn't say much, so the detective left and returned on June 18th. His initial statement did not include locations or descriptions of Dana Ireland, and some details did not make sense. He said he had been with two brothers. They had knocked Dana down before killing her with a tire iron and dumping their clothes. After speaking with the detectives, Pauline was taken back to Pune and driven around close to the crime scenes. He was asked if he remembered being at any of the locations, but Pauline said he wasn't sure because he had been smoking crack cocaine at the time. He indicated that Dana had been knocked down 500 yards from the scene. On June 19th, Pauline had another interview with Detective Guillermo at Hawaii County Police Department. Pauline described how, on December 24th, 1991, his two friends, Ian and Sean Schweizer, 
who were 20 and 16 years old respectively, came to his house and asked him if he wanted to go party. He said yes and got into Ian's purple Volkswagen Beetle. Pauline began to describe how they drove along a dirt road near Capoho and then interrupted himself and said, wait, I gotta say about the stops. He explained that the group made several stops to smoke cocaine and then drove along Capoho Kai Drive. Here, Pauline said they saw a girl standing on the side of the road and Ian turned the car around and drove back toward the girl. Pauline told the detective, He was going faster and I was telling him to slow down. About 40, 45 miles an hour because I looked at the speedometer. And then he just kept on going towards the girl. The next thing I knew, I felt like going over a speed bump real fast. How many times we went over? About, I would say, roughly two times. Pauline described how the girl had been walking across the road. The detective reminded him that he had mentioned in an earlier conversation that the girl had a bike with her. When asked to describe the girl, Pauline said he couldn't remember her hair color or anything but knew she was a Howley girl, meaning she was not local. Pauline claimed that Ian and Sean Schweitzer put the girl's body in the front trunk of the Beetle and drove back toward Hawaiian beaches. They made several stops, including a junkyard. Here, Pauline claimed he helped Ian take the girl's body out of the trunk and lay her down. He insisted that she was still alive and never said anything or complained about being hurt while Ian sexually assaulted her. Pauline claimed he had refused to do the same, then Ian told him they needed to knock her off. Pauline stated, He said if someone was to find her and she was to make it, live, she would tell on us and we would all get busted. So he told me to look for something, so when I went to go look, I found an L-shaped bar, tire bar, in the backseat area. Then I walked out to the bug, I mean, I walked toward the girl and he told me to hit her. So I swung all the way back and I hit her on the head. Somewhere on the head. I'm not sure where. Then I dropped the bar and I went toward the bug on the driver's side and I remained outside it. I was feeling sick and I told Ian that I cannot do this. So he went head back to her and I guess he did it. In the confession, Pauline claimed he could not remember where he struck her, but he knew he hit her hard. He said that afterwards, they drove back to Ian Schweitzer's house, and that's when he realized the girl's body wasn't in the trunk anymore. The Schweitzers put their clothes into a trash bag along with a tire iron and left it at the side of the house. Pauline made five more statements before 1996, which varied in detail in his own level of involvement. Based on Pauline's initial statement implicating himself and the Schweitzers, the police seized a yellow VW Beetle and obtained a search warrant for their family home. No evidence was found linking the Schweitzers to the crime. When interviewed, the brothers denied ever seeing Dana Ireland or going out with Frank Pauline on Christmas Eve, 1991. In fact, the Schweitzers claimed they had a feud with Pauline and his family because a relative of Pauline's lived across the street, and the Schweitzers had reported illegal activity at their property on a number of occasions. Pauline and the Schweitzer brothers consented to provide DNA and bite impressions to be compared to evidence in the case. The dental impressions did not match the alleged bite mark on Dana Ireland's breast. In December 1994, after being moved to Maui prison for his own protection, Pauline was interviewed by the Hawaii Tribune Herald. The version of the story Pauline told the paper was different from his police statements in that he claimed that he had seen one brother bite Dana Ireland. He vomited from fear and disgust as she was sexually assaulted. Protesting his innocence, Pauline told the reporter, I'm not a murderer. I couldn't kill a fly. I'm scared. I'm a big guy, but I'm only 21. This is real spooky for me. Five months later, Pauline contacted the police and claimed that he knew who actually killed Dana Ireland. In an interview in April 1995, Pauline said that his brother, Wayne Gonzalez, had been the one behind the wheel of the VW Beetle when it struck Dana, and that Gonzalez had been the one to rape and bite Dana. 
Wayne Gonzalez was eventually cleared as a suspect when he provided videotaped proof that he was at a Christmas party at the time of the murder. In January 1996, Frank Pauline Jr. recanted his confession. Pauline said that he had been advised by his brother John to make the confession that he witnessed the murder in order to get a reduction on his own sentence and to get a deal for Gonzalez and other family members in the cocaine conspiracy case. Gonzalez ended up getting five years of probation instead of the 10-year sentence he was facing. Pauline claimed that Gonzalez had agreed to help him pay off a prison drug debt if it worked. Pauline had racked up a large bill behind bars due to his cocaine addiction, and because he couldn't pay it, he was being threatened daily. After cooperating with the police, Pauline was moved to protective custody and eventually to other prisons. Despite his recantation, the police believed they had enough evidence to present to the grand jury. On July 30, 1997, Frank Pauline Jr. was indicted for the rape, kidnap, and murder of Dana Ireland. A few months later, Ian and Sean Schweitzer were indicted on the same charges. The Irelands were delighted that there was finally indictments in the case after six years, but it would take a while longer for the case to go to trial. There were issues with the evidence and lack thereof. When the FBI initially tested the sperm samples, they did not find a match, and they had used up most of the sample. The swabs taken during the rape examination, as well as the Jimmy Z t-shirt found at the Wawa scene, and the gurney sheet Dana Ireland was transported to the hospital on, were sent to Forensic Analytical Science Incorporated for testing. In October 1998, test results showed that sperm was found on the vaginal swabs and the sheet. The DNA profile collected from the sperm did not match Frank Pauline, Ian Schweitzer, or Sean Schweitzer. The charges against the Schweitzers were dismissed without prejudice on October 20th as a result. However, Frank Pauline Jr. was still committed to trial. Witnesses and jailhouse informants had come forward to say that Pauline was involved in the murder, including his brother John Gonzalez, who was believed to have secured a deal for his testimony. While free, the Schweitzer brothers and their family were subjected to threats and harassment. Posters calling for their death had been hung around Pahoa after the charges were dropped. Other charges had been filed against them in the meantime, including a sexual assault charge filed against Sean, stemming from an incident involving a 15-year-old girl in 1992, when Sean was 16 years old. Although the alleged victim in the case had said it was consensual, Sean was ultimately advised to plead no contest to a misdemeanor, and received a 180-day sentence. Two months before Pauline's trial began, another informant, Michael Ortiz, came forward. Ortiz had been sentenced to a term of 3 to 10 years in 1997 for felony theft and explained that he had been in prison with Ian Schweitzer before his release in 1998. In May 1999, Ortiz said that Ian Schweitzer had allegedly confessed to him and he would testify to that at trial. Ortiz was released from prison two months later before serving even the minimum term of his sentence. Later that month, the Schweitzer brothers were reindicted on murder, kidnapping, and sexual assault charges. Pauline's defense attorney, Clifford Hunt, said that his client had been coerced into making detailed statements over seven interviews and was promised moves to different jails for his cooperation. The detectives had asked Pauline leading questions, but the judge ruled it did not amount to coercion, and Pauline's statements would be admitted into evidence. In February 1999, Prosecutor Lincoln Ashida had publicly stated that the prosecution believed another man was involved in the murder, explaining why the DNA found did not match any of those charged in the crime. The then 26-year-old Frank Pauline Jr.'s trial began in July 1999. The prosecution argued that Pauline, the Schweitzers, and one other person had run Dana Ireland off her bike on Christmas Eve 1991 before taking her to Wawa, 
where she was sexually assaulted and left to die. They said that even though Pauline had recanted his confessions, the details in his statement included things only someone at the scene would know. Pauline's attorney, Clifford Hunt, explained that Pauline had falsely confessed in an attempt to secure a deal for himself and leniency for his relatives who were facing drug conspiracy charges. Pauline was afraid while serving his sentence in Halawa Correctional Center and felt compelled to provide the detectives with certain information in order to get moved away from the drug dealers who were threatening him. Pauline felt that saying he not only witnessed the attack, but had struck Dana Ireland, would work. His plan backfired. Dana Ireland's injuries were not consistent with being struck by a tire iron, as Pauline had claimed. The DNA found on her body did not match Pauline's DNA. Defense attorney Hunt told the jury that witnesses had seen a pickup truck at the scene and that the injuries and tire impressions were consistent with a pickup truck being used in the crime. The Volkswagen Beetle was too small, he said. Witnesses, including Pauline's girlfriend at the time of the murder, described how they had seen him wearing the blue Jimmy Z t-shirt before. The only DNA found on the t-shirt at the time of the trial was Dana Ireland's, and the prosecution alleged that this was evidence that Pauline had been present at her murder. Shane Kobayashi testified that he had seen Pauline and the Schweitzer brothers drinking on the beach on the day of the murder, and that they had left in the car after seeing Dana Ireland ride by on her bicycle. He also claimed that Sean Schweitzer had confessed to him. Kobayashi had been serving a prison sentence for a rape before becoming a state witness. He had been granted early release after just three years as a result. Another witness, William Chung, who lived close to Pauline, said that Pauline had confessed to him on Christmas Day, 1991. When asked to identify Pauline in court, Chung pointed to another person. He described them as the person they knew as Frank Pauline. Members of Pauline's family, including his brother, John Gonzalves, and his cousin, Demetrio Gonzalves, testified for the state. Demetrio Gonzalves said that Pauline confessed to him the night it happened. Demetrio told the court that if it was his daughter, he would have taken matters into his own hands, prompting Pauline to shout from the defense table, Tell them the truth, you fucking liar. Many of the witnesses against Pauline were associates of his half-brother, John, who benefited from Pauline's incriminating confession five years prior. Defense attorney Hunt also disclosed that there had been 25 other suspects investigated in the case, and the police had actively been pursuing those with pickup trucks until Pauline's confession in 1994. At that point, their focus shifted to finding evidence to corroborate Pauline's claims, and apart from the signed statement, there were no recordings of his interviews with the police. After over a month, the prosecution rested their case, and defense witnesses began testifying. Dr. Edward Blake, a DNA expert who had gained notoriety for his work on the O.J. Simpson case, testified that he had found sperm on the gurney sheet used to transport Dana Ireland. He described how he had used a new technique in DNA analysis called polymerase chain reaction, which replicates small samples of DNA. Dr. Blake said that the sperm sample from the sheet matched the sperm found on swabs from Dana's autopsy, and that Pauline and both Schweitzers were excluded as contributors. Ten other men had their samples compared, which did not match either. Frank Pauline testified in his own defense. He said that he had fabricated the entire story to get himself out of a bad situation in prison and to help his brother, John Gonzalves, who he described as the godfather of cocaine in the Puna and Hilo districts of Big Island. Pauline had called Gonzalves for help paying off drug debts. Gonzalves suggested that he spoke to the police about the Dana Ireland case to try to cut a deal. Pauline said his brother told him, The worst thing that can happen to you, boy, is they're going to give you perjury. They're not going to put you in for murder. Pauline claimed that he began watching the news and reading papers to learn as much as possible about the case. Gonzalves told Pauline to contact a psychic he knew. The psychic told Pauline that one of his relatives and the Schweitzers were involved. 
Gonsalves had been the one to contact Detective Guillermo first, and then Pauline was visited by the investigators in prison. Pauline asserted that he had explained away discrepancies in his statements by claiming he had been under the influence of cocaine at the time, but said, in reality, he didn't know what happened because he was not there. He explained that after giving several statements, he was no longer treated as a witness and became a murder suspect. During cross-examination, Pauline was asked how he included unpublicized details about the case, including the alleged bite mark, if he was not there. Pauline said the detectives had told him about it. Prosecutor Ashida asked Pauline if it was true he needed the jury to believe he was a liar if they were to believe he wasn't a murderer. Pauline responded, I don't care if anybody believes me. I don't care if anybody believes me. The main thing is I'm speaking the truth. That's all I care about. On the stand, Pauline denied ever owning a blue Jimmy Z t-shirt and said the one found at the scene was two sizes too small for him anyway. Videotape testimony from renowned forensic pathologist Dr. Werner Spitz was played to the jury. Dr. Spitz had reviewed the evidence and said he doubted the state's case against Pauline. Her injuries were consistent with being run over by a car, not being hit with a tire iron. Closing arguments in the case then began. Defense attorney Clifford Hunt argued that DNA excluded not only Frank Pauline, but his alleged co-defendants Ian and Sean Schweitzer as being the ones to murder and rape Dana Ireland. Attorney Hunt said that the police had botched the investigation and the prosecution were relying on criminals as their key witnesses. He also accused the prosecution of shying away from the physical evidence because they knew it did not help their case. In his rebuttal, Deputy Prosecutor Lincoln Ashida said he was unafraid of the DNA evidence. In fact, he claimed to embrace it, as DNA technology was what proved Dana Ireland's blood was on the t-shirt witnesses described belonging to Pauline. When the jury were sent to deliberate, they were told they could only consider finding Pauline guilty or not guilty of all the charges he faced. After two days of deliberations, the jury returned with a verdict. They found Frank Pauline Jr. guilty of second-degree murder, kidnapping, and first-degree sexual assault. Two months later, in October 1999, Pauline was sentenced to three life terms in prison, with two to be served concurrently. Before being sentenced by Judge Ricky May Amano, Pauline had addressed the court and said to Sandy Ireland, Ms. Ireland, I feel sorry for what happened to your sister. If your sister could be here, she would stand up and say you've got the wrong guy. I hope you make an effort to catch the real people. Your dad was on the right track. Pauline also voiced the opinion that he was being punished for his lies. His life sentences would not begin until 2004, when he finished serving the 10-year sentence he had been given for sexual assault in 1994. The parole board also decided that he had to serve at least 180 years in prison before he was eligible for parole. It was a welcome verdict and sentence for the Irelands, who had been waiting eight years for some sort of justice. They praised the local community for their unwavering support throughout their ordeal. Sandy Ireland said, The community has had a lot of aloha for us. There were more trials to come. Sean Schweitzer's attorney, Keith Shigatomi, asked for the case against Sean to be dropped as it was based on testimony from Michael Ortiz, who claimed to have heard a confession from Ian. The trials for Albert Ian Schweitzer and his younger brother Sean were severed and Ian faced trial first in January of 2000. Ian's re-indictment was based on a statement made by Michael Ortiz, who had been released from prison two months after agreeing to testify against Ian. In his statement, Ortiz claimed that Ian had told him he had driven toward Dana, Ireland, because Pauline was going to hit her out of the window, but he lost control on the gravel road and slid into the back of her bicycle. He said that Pauline had grabbed Dana by the hair and pulled her into the car, which was why a clump of hair was found on the road. According to Ortiz, 
Ian had told him that Pauline had raped Dana while he and Sean panicked and asked to leave. The statement did not match the evidence at either scene, and Ian had an alibi, but he was brought to trial anyway after maintaining his innocence and turning down two plea agreements that would see him serve 10 years of probation. As there had been in Pauline's trial, the majority of the key witnesses who incriminated Ian Schweitzer were convicts who had been given reduced sentences in exchange for their testimony. Speaking about Michael Ortiz's statement to police about a confession Ian made while they were in the Hawaii Community Correctional Center, Ian's mother, Linda, said that the prosecution had urged her and her husband, Jerry, to listen to the taping of Ortiz's account in an effort to encourage their sons to take a plea bargain. Linda Schweitzer said that Ortiz was not Ian's cellmate and they had only seen each other during recreational periods. In their opening statement, the prosecution described how Dana Ireland had been approached and attacked by a pack of men before she was repeatedly beaten and raped. He argued that Frank Pauline had pulled Dana's injured body into Ian's Volkswagen Beetle before biting her so hard on the breast that he almost avulsed her nipple. Ian's defense attorney, James Biven, told the jury that it was a pickup truck that struck Dana as she rode on her bike and that the testimony against his client would come from liars, felons, drug dealers, and thieves, including Pauline's brother, John Gonzalez, who had even tried to claim the reward money. Biven told the jury that the prosecution had not found the evidence at the scene or in the lab, so they had to find it in prison from informants who would cut a deal. Without DNA, bite impressions, or tire marks placing Ian at the scene, the prosecution relied on the existence of an unknown fourth suspect, and John Gonzalez's testimony corroborated their theory. Attorney Biven stated, Even if you believe John Gonzalez's story, it isn't supported by the other evidence. He says he sees Frank Pauline, Ian, and Sean, plus one more person who he can't identify, come to his mom's house on Christmas Eve, 1991. This is the story the prosecution wants you to believe, because this is the only evidence of a fourth person was involved. The prosecution needs a fourth person because in order to convict Ian of the charges, whose DNA was it? It's not Ian's. It's not Sean's. It's not Frank Pauline's. Ultimately, the jury believed the prosecution's version of events and found Ian Schweitzer guilty of second-degree murder, kidnap, and first-degree sexual assault on February 15, 2000. He was sentenced to 130 years in prison. The youngest defendant, Sean Schweitzer, entered a proffer agreement a month later on the advice of his parents and brother Ian. Sean agreed to implicate his brother and Pauline and to take a polygraph examination to prove he was telling the truth about what happened. In his confession, Sean said that Pauline had been the aggressor and that there had not been a fourth person present at the time of the murder. In April of 2000, Sean Schweitzer pleaded guilty to manslaughter and kidnapping. Prosecutor Lincoln Ashida told the court that Sean had passed a polygraph confirming his account but failed to say that Sean had, in fact, shown signs of deception while making his confession. Sean was ultimately given one year in prison with credit for time served and four years of probation, meaning he was free to go. Speaking about Sean's confession that claimed there was never a fourth person, Prosecutor Lincoln Ashida said, That actually buttresses or confirms our theory about the DNA being old, degraded, possibly contaminated. For all you know, that DNA could belong to either Ian or Frankie. In my mind, that's the more likely scenario. The prosecutor indicated that he believed the DNA did not exclude the suspects, but it had been too degraded to prove it was them. Frank Pauline attempted to appeal his conviction in 2002, after his own failed appeal in 2004, Ian Schweitzer contacted the Hawaii Innocence Project. In March 2019, the Hawaii Innocence Project, the New York Innocence Project, and the Hawaii County Prosecuting Attorney's Office reinvestigated the case in a joint effort called a Conviction Integrity Agreement. 
Four years later, on January 23, 2023, the Hawaii Innocence Project and Prosecuting Attorney's Office filed joint, stipulated facts alongside a motion to vacate Ian Schweitzer's conviction. In the years they worked together, those who reinvestigated the case discovered new evidence that had not been presented to the jury at Ian Schweitzer's trial. In October 2022, Sean Schweitzer met with prosecuting attorneys to discuss his plea agreement and the polygraph examination he undertook in 2000. Sean recanted his confession and said that he and his brother had not been involved in the murder at all. He had only agreed to enter a guilty plea because he had seen his brother be convicted of the crimes and receive a life sentence. In the joint stipulated facts document, it states that the Schweitzer's parents did not want to risk losing another son and encouraged Sean to do whatever it took to come home. Ian Schweitzer had also encouraged his brother to accept the plea agreement. Sean had two young children and a long-term partner to whom he was eager to get home to. Taking the agreement meant that he could. The document states that Sean felt and continues to feel immense guilt about the confession and entering a guilty plea for something he did not do, and for implicating his brother when he knew he too was innocent. One month later, Sean underwent a polygraph examination. The results showed he was telling the truth when he denied any involvement in Dana Ireland's murder. At Ian Schweitzer's murder trial, the prosecution said it had been Ian's Volkswagen Beetle that was used to knock Dana off her bike and take her to the Wawa Trail, where she was raped and left to die. The new investigation asked Matthew Martin at Ron Smith & Associates to review the tire tread evidence from both scenes. In the original investigation, detectives found tracks at the Wawa scene that measured 9 inches. The wheelbase, which indicates the length of the vehicle, was 132 inches, and the track width was 74 inches. Mr. Marvin examined a 1953 Volkswagen Beetle similar to the car that Ian Schweitzer owned and found that the tread width was 4.92 inches, the wheelbase was 94.5 inches, and the track width was between 49 and 51 inches. Based on those measurements, Mr. Marvin concluded that the Volkswagen Beetle could not have produced the tracks found unless it was fitted with tires that were more than twice the width of the manufacturer's specification. Mr. Marvin also concluded that the Volkswagen did not produce the tracks found on Kapohok High Drive, where Dana was knocked down, and that the tracks found at both scenes were likely produced by the same vehicle, a pickup truck. Not only was Ian Schweitzer's car inconsistent with the evidence found at the scenes, but it was also discovered that he did not even own the Volkswagen until over a month after the murder. None of that evidence was presented at his trial. During the testimony of jailhouse informant Michael Ortiz, it was heard that Ian allegedly confessed that Frank Pauline had bitten Dana Ireland on the breast. This was repeated throughout the trial, and the prosecution had told the jury that Pauline had bitten Dana so hard that he nearly bit through her nipple. The injury in question had been identified by the medical examiner as being very characteristic for a bite mark of the breast area. Forensic odontology was an accepted forensic technique for quite some time and regularly used in trials as a method of identification, most notably in Ted Bundy's case. But in more recent years, it has become known as flawed or junk science. In the reinvestigation of the case, forensic odontology expert Dr. Adam Freeman reviewed the injury and concluded it was not actually a bite mark at all. Newly discovered DNA evidence was also presented. Unlike in the late 90s when DNA in the case was first analyzed, modern DNA testing methods have advanced enough to determine who the habitual wearer of an item of clothing was. Testimony at the trials in 99 and 2000 led the jury to believe that the blood-soaked Jimmy Z t-shirt belonged to Frank Pauline, strengthening his confession that he had been present when Ian Schweitzer killed Dana Ireland. In 2007, the Jimmy Z t-shirt was sent to Reliagene to be re-examined. Tests concluded there was sperm and sweat found on the t-shirt, 
and a DNA profile was established. Subsequent tests in 2020 showed that not only did it not belong to Ian Schweitzer, Sean Schweitzer, or Frank Pauline, it matched the DNA profile from the sperm sample found at Dana's autopsy and the sperm found on the hospital sheet. The person who wore the t-shirt and raped Dana Ireland was listed only as unknown male number one. Unknown male one is the only person whose DNA was discovered on the evidence. No evidence was linked to any of the three men convicted. One day after the motion was filed, a hearing was held in Hilo, Hawaii. After hearing the evidence presented by the New York and Hawaii Innocence Project lawyers and the prosecuting attorney's office, Judge Peter Kubota vacated Ian Schweitzer's conviction and ordered that he be released from custody immediately. Judge Kubota said that the outrage in the community at the time may have led to a desire to convict someone or anyone for the brutal crime, and that the new evidence made it clear that those convicted were not involved. Speaking directly to Ian Schweitzer at the hearing, Judge Kubota told him that although he had lived two-thirds of his life, he had another third ahead of him. The judge said, You can live it being angry and resentful at the process and the people that put you there, or you can live it with a new freedom, all right? I suggest that since you have your whole family here, you hug and love your family and live a fulfilled life and make the best of the next one-third of your life. 51-year-old Ian Schweitzer had an emotional reunion with his family, whose lives he had missed out on for almost 25 years, including his son, who was just a baby when he was sent to prison for a crime he did not commit. The Schweitzer family had almost been destroyed after Ian and Sean were implicated in Pauline's confession. Neither of the brothers had a history of criminality apart from traffic offenses prior to becoming suspects in Dana Ireland's murder. Ian Schweitzer had been working as a nurse in Kauai for years before his arrest, and he was starting a family. Sean Schweitzer was able to go home to his family, but he found it hard to find someone who would hire him and faced frequent death threats from those who felt he had gotten away with murder. Frank Pauline did not live to see the evidence that would have likely exonerated him. One day after it was announced that the Hawaii Innocence Project had taken over the case, 42-year-old Frank Pauline was murdered in the recreation yard of Southern New Mexico Correctional Facility on April 27, 2015. He had been bludgeoned to death by a fellow inmate who claimed that Pauline was a snitch who walked around like he owned the place. Pauline's killer, Daniel Thomas Hood, was serving time for two murders at that time. During his prison sentence, Frank Pauline had maintained his claims of innocence and became religious. He also recovered from drug addiction, according to family members. It was suspected that someone outside of the prison had orchestrated the killing for a reason potentially related to the ongoing exoneration efforts. The Innocence Project is currently working to vacate Pauline's conviction posthumously and to vacate Sean Schweitzer's conviction, too. The Ireland civil suit against the state of Hawaii was settled out of court in 1996. They were awarded over $450,000 in the negligence suit, and the majority went to the scholarship fund in Dana's memory. Dana Ireland's father, John, died in November of 2000, just months after Sean Schweitzer was convicted. Sandy Ireland has said, My father devoted so much of his time pursuing justice for his daughter that he neglected his health. John Ireland had been an incredible victim's advocate who prompted a change in Hawaiian legislation in his daughter's memory. Louise Ireland passed in 2016. In an email to the Hawaii Tribune Herald in 2011, Sandy Ireland said, I think about how wonderful it would be to have her here in this world participating in our lives. Unfortunately, the cliché that time and distance heal loss and tragedy did not prove true for me. When other personal or family crises arise, they are more difficult to get through because the memories of the events surrounding Dana's death tend to surface, and I react with dysfunction. 
That does not mean I wallow in sadness and self-pity. I still try to live life to its fullest, but much of it is colored by what happened 20 years ago. At this time, Dana Ireland's murder is unsolved. According to the Innocence Project and the prosecuting attorneys, the joint reinvestigation to identify unknown male one remains active and will continue. This episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane, editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman, script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening and please be safe.